It is my great pleasure to welcome our guest, Cheryl Conti, today. I'm Alex Jones, director of the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy here at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Um, Cheryl Conti is a uh, an unashamed geek and identifies herself as such. She has been one of the people who has been on the early uh, adapter, cutting edge of, of digital technology and adapting it to things like fundraising and organizing and doing the kinds of things that the technology now makes both easy and complicated in that there's so much going on and so much changing, but there's so much opportunity out there. She has also become one of the significant voices uh, for African-American middle-class people to address issues of the day. She makes a point in her blog, which is called jackandjillpolitics.com, that that it is intended not for, you know, or to, to uh, offer a genuine voice and perspective for people who are not in the stereotypes either of um, criminal drug dealers or elites, uh, elite athletes and celebrity stars who happen to be African American. It is for a very large, very under sort of noticed middle class of African Americans who have their own perspective on the world and who have a um, uh, a need to look at the world through that particular prism, at least in part. And Jack and Jill uh, media is, you know, politics is one of the ways to do that. I thought that that was her major concern. Cheryl has just told me that's, you know, she does that with one hand tied behind her back. Uh, and does a great deal of other things, all involving digital media and uh, and focus on issues of importance to the African-American audience that she is uh, seeking to connect with and reach out to. Cheryl, we're very glad to have you with us. Thank you so much, Alex, and thank you also to Edie Hallway for inviting me here to speak to you. Thank you for attending. I am told that this is the last day of classes. So thank you for taking time out of your uh, busy schedules to speak with me. Uh, so the title of uh, our session today is called Black, Tour, Black Power 2.0, The Rise of the Online African-American Political Influential. So I want to first start off talking about the context in which we launched our blog at jackandjillpolitics.com. At the time, in 2006, there, were, there was a perceived leadership gap uh, as organizations and institutions that had traditionally served the African-American community, such as Ebony and Jet, uh, the NAACP, the Urban League, etc., were perceived by many as moribund, uh, ineffective, complacent, slow to respond, particularly online. As other uh, progressive organizations were moving aggressively online, they, in fact, were not. Uh, That's in part because of the uh, digital divide, uh, as it was seen. And and many of those organizations said, well, black people aren't really online, so why would we bother? We we have these traditional modes, and and we're going to try to, to make those work. At the same time, what you see is the children of the civil rights era the affirmative action babies, uh, the post-segregation 
generation coming of age with a new confidence, uh, highly trained professional skills, yet infused with the uh, passion from their parents for equality and, and civil rights and, and a movement forward. So this hip-hop generation in particular grew uh, very much to resent and resist uh, the uh, way that the media placed forward people like Jay-Z or Beyonce or Michael Jordan or Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton as African-American leaders uh, or tended to portray African-Americans as primarily you know, criminals, uh, the lower class. And, and there were a lot of African-Americans who said, look, the majority of us are tax-paying, hard-working uh, Americans um, who uh, want uh, a greater nation. So it's within this context that you see the rise of Jack and Jill politics when there were a lot of us who were either political or technical geeks who were watching what was happening with sites like uh, Daily Coast or MyDD, um, Open Left, who were going after a, a primarily white audience and thinking, well, why couldn't we do that for uh, our folks, for, for our people, and, and talk about our issues. So you've got a tech-savvy group of people who are also highly independent, they're collaborative, uh, and they're also cross-cultural. I think with a lot of the black blogs, particularly of that time, there's a lot of crossover of content uh, and linking a, a lot of support from uh, white progressive blogs, from uh, early Latino blogs, from uh, online uh, emerging media at places like the New York Times and Washington Post. Uh, you've also got a lot of irreverence. There's a, a sharp humor that's coming from the influence of folks like Dave Chappelle or, or Wanda Sykes or Chris Rock. So all of that uh, together, I think, brought a, a real richness and, and a new voice online. At the same time, most of the early blogs, like ours, like Skeptical Brother or Prometheus 6 or African American Political Pundit, were pseudonymous. There was a lot of fear out there of, you know, no one has done this before. You know, and what would it mean to our careers, to our lives, for people to actually know who we are? You know, let's let's test it out. So acting behind these these uh, pseudonyms, mine is Jill Tubman, of course. My co-founder, Baratunde Thurston's, is Jack Turner, uh, with the reference, of course, to uh, Harriet Tubman and Jack Turner. Uh, sorry, Nat Turner. It allowed us to be fearless uh, and to, to act almost as the junkyard dogs and to really aggressively go after not only uh, inaccurate media portrayals, but also uh, African-American leaders that we uh, determined to be ineffective uh, representatives for, for African-Americans. So what I'd like to turn to now very briefly is a, a couple of our greatest hits. Uh, we were sort of the right blog at the right time, if you will. We started again in 2006, and over the course of that time, in 2008, we of course have the rise of the first now African-American uh, president. So people were really looking for and eager to understand what African-Americans thought about this guy and, uh, you know, about his, uh, his policies and, and, you know, the new, you know, form of African-American uh, intellectual and politician uh, that he represented. So uh, going back to 2008, uh, 
at that time, John McCain and uh, then Hillary Clinton began to call uh, during that during the election cycle Barack Obama elitist. And the media actually started to pick up on, on this and, and ask that question, is Barack Obama elitist? After all, he went to Harvard, right? That's a pretty fancy institution. Uh, and uh, at the same time, there were a lot of people like us, and I think we were one of the, the first blogs to um, go out and saying, wow, that's really interesting that the son and grandson of admirals and the daughter of a doctor who's a specialist and an ophthalmologist would call the son of a single teenage mother elitist. What's really going on here? What, what it, what's actually being said uh, about this person? Uh, and so uh, the blog post um, that I wrote from that time was called, you know, McCain and Clinton call uh, Barack Obama an uppity N-word. And that got a lot of attention for uh, obvious reasons. It was something that a lot of African Americans would have traditionally said in barber shops or beauty salons amongst themselves, but now here were blogs who were actually saying that in the public discourse. That uh, blog post and other blog posts like it appeared on places like CNN where they actually showed the screenshots of us saying that to show that it was actually happening and, and we actually were uh, invited to speak um, on various uh, media platforms. Uh, it did turn the national conversation around. McCain and, and Clinton had to abandon that particular tack because it was clear that, that there was a cognitive dissonance there that, that they weren't going to be allowed to get away with. Another example of, of work that we've done that's not necessarily media focused but more uh, targeting uh, African-American leaders was uh, our uh, pushing the Congressional Black Caucus members who were superdelegates during the primary season who were uh, saying that they may or may not vote for uh, Barack Obama, maybe in favor of Hillary Clinton instead, since they had existing relationships. Yet many of those Congressional Black Caucus members, uh, actually their districts had voted 80 or 90 percent in favor of Barack Obama. And so uh, that was something that um, many of us really felt could not stand and actually went after uh, many very uh, high-level leaders um, in, among uh, African-American congressmen in a way that they had never seen before or experienced. And uh, I got called some names uh, on national television, uh, and that was fine. You know, I was, I was willing to take it, in part because I was still pseudonymous at that time, um, but also it was in service to a greater good, which was to really push hard on African-American leaders who actually represent what African-Americans actually want and, and need. Uh, and so many of them, like James Clyburn or Charlie Rangel, actually had to uh, shift gears and uh, came out eventually in support of, of, Af of um, Barack Obama and um, did not vote uh, with Hillary Clinton in an, in an attempt to um, turn the, the Democratic nomination in her favor. So there are a number of, of ways, and many of you may be more familiar with those than, than even I am, uh, that black bloggers, uh, including uh, Jack and Jill Politics, have managed to influence the national discourse um, on uh, politics. 
Uh, and that was a surprise to us. Certainly when I launched the blog in, in 2006, after work and in my office one day, I, I never dreamed that it would have the impact um, that it's had. And that's been really exciting. I still do the blog in an hour or two a day. And I think that that's, that really is a testament to the power of these tools and the power of one voice coming together in coordination with other voices. So today in the post-2008 uh, era, um, we are unmasked. I'm, of course, uh, openly um, talking about my work at, at Jack and Jill Politics, um, although some of us are still pseudonymous, such as Rakaira here on the screen um, has not actually uh, come forward with her true identity. Uh, and we're media savvy. We've been quoted in the New York Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe. We're often invited on BBC, Al Jazeera, uh, MSNBC, CNN, etc. Doors have opened. Uh, relationships have been created. I just came uh, from a meeting at the White House uh, yesterday, which was really exciting, and that's the third time, in fact, that I've been invited. So that's uh, been um, a, a, a great um, boost, not only for the morale, of course, for the bloggers, but also for all of the people who are members of the Jack and Jill politics community, and we really see ourselves that way. I don't see myself as media, per se, or press. I see myself as a, a concerned citizen, joining with other concerned citizens in uh, working towards change, towards positive change. So just briefly to touch on the future of Jack and Jill politics, of course, we're gearing up for the 2012 election. We've got some new plans in development to overhaul uh, the site and uh, kick it into uh, another dimension. Uh, among the features there that I'd say we're, we're focusing on is continued leadership among black political bloggers, at the same time preserving and building on a strong relationship with the White House as allies, not as proxies or as puppets. We have increasingly uh, developed relationships with the new uh, black media, sort of the, the Ebony 2.0 or Jet 2.0, such as The Root or uh, Loop 21 or The Grio. Um, we want to we continue to develop those relationships. Uh, of course, we have strong relationship with Latino blogs, progressive blogs, with mainstream media, with also with organizations that are that are new, such as Color of Change, which is now the largest African American focused uh, organization in America, with something like seven hundred thousand members. They are bigger, much bigger than the NAACP. Or uh, Reverend Lennox Yearwood of Hip Hop Caucus, or Rinku Sen of Applied Research Center. All of those people actually blog on Jack and Jill politics now, in addition to bloggers that we've recruited from the community. What I'm seeing is a new Harlem Renaissance. Call it Harlem Renaissance 2.0. In the 1920s and 30s, you had this great migration of African Americans coming up from the cities and mixing together, and you know they had a also a new level of education than had been seen. So you see the emergence of really interesting and progressive politically and socially African Americans like Langston Hughes, Duke Ellington, Paul Robeson, Ramari Bearden, Josephine Baker, Ida B. Wells, that were that not only changed African American society, but also changed American society for good. And, and I think that we're living through a similar time uh, where you've got across many 
different disciplines, art, science, literature, politics, you name it, music. You know, we've got this rich dynamism of people who are sharing ideas and rubbing shoulders in a way that not is not is not only of interest to African Americans, but also of interest to a wider selection. When you talk to bloggers like us or to the root, what you'll find is that thirty percent or fifty percent of our readership is non African American. There are a lot of people who aren't African American who are also interested in, in the work that we're doing. So it's an exciting time, and uh, I love speaking at universities like this. I, I love being able to talk to students. I get a lot of emails and requests from students to talk to them, uh, to help them with their dissertations or their theses, and I feel like there's a new generation coming behind us that uh, is both inspired and inspiring, and uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what they create next. So with that, I'd love to turn it over. Let me, uh, I'd like to ask the first one, and then we will, um, we will take questions from all of you. But let me remind you, you must ask the question from this microphone because of uh, C-SPAN's recording, and we would ask that you just identify yourself. Uh, Cheryl, one of the things that happened uh, in this most recent election is at least the appearance that uh, a lot of the constituency that Barack Obama had in the African-American community either had changed their minds or were unmotivated to get out. And I really wonder how you analyze uh, how this is going to play in 2012 and whether you think this group, which was so important to his election, is going to um, rouse itself and back him strongly. Sure. Traditionally speaking, African-American turnout during midterm elections tends to be lower anyway. There's evidence out there that shows that the heavy uh, appearances and, and traveling that uh, the Obamas did, both Michelle Obama and Barack Obama, during the midterm election uh, run-up may have had an impact in actually boosting what would have been much lower numbers, in fact. So I'm actually sanguine. I think that we're going to see a pretty significant and large turnout. Again, I think that African Americans remain extremely supportive um, of the president, and all the poll numbers say that. Of course, there's some, you know, disappointment. He doesn't walk on water. He's not perfect, and I think African Americans understand that. At the same time, there's still immense pride and immense support for his work and what he represents. And do you think that the the organizations, the ones you mentioned, and of course, JackandJoePolitics.com, are going to have a significant role in? marshalling that support, or is your, is your position uh, something at, at a remove? Something, are you an activist in proactively supporting the re-election of Barack Obama, or is your, uh, is your blog and your site and your community and your role something uh, more dispassionate? Oh, absolutely. Our, the, the base of our community is in activism, is in the sense of we're a group of people who come together to get things done. Uh, so we continue to be, we were one of the first blogs, actually, period, of any race uh, or, or any targeting to support Barack Obama's presidency. And that's something that they really value um, and, and I know that we're very proud of. So we're going to continue to uh, support um, the president's reelection, and, and that's something that we're we're keen to do. At the same time, things are very different than they were in 2008. Today, Twitter has become in, in, increasingly uh, influential 
um, in the African-American community. There was a Business Week article uh, just a few months ago that uh, asserted that as many as 25% of the people on Twitter are African-American, which is pretty astonishing when we, when we think of and know Twitter as a global phenomenon. Uh, when you factor in uh, mobile internet access, there is no digital divide. So we also know that mobile is going to be incredibly important in this election cycle. Mm -hmm. So that's something we've already integrated certain aspects of Twitter into uh, how we reach our audience. Our uh, blog feeds directly into at JJ Politics um, on Twitter. People can uh, tweet. Um, and, and share our stories within the blog on Twitter very easily with the click, or they can comment using their Twitter identity and, and leave a comment directly on the blog, but then also uh, tweet at the same time simultaneously. So you know, we know that, that those are also important venues for doing the work that we're doing. The blog ultimately is just a vehicle for motivating a community to change. Yes, Hello, and thank you for coming to speak with us today. My name is James Norte, a third-year student at the law school, and my question is about old black media. What are your thoughts about Jet Magazine, Ebony Magazine, traditional black newspapers and magazines? Are they still relevant today, or are they just on their dying breaths, on their last legs? That's a great question. Actually, uh, Eric Easter, um, who heads up EbonyJet.com, came to speak at Blogging While Brown, um, on which I'm, I'm on the board. It's the premier conference for uh, African-American bloggers. And uh, he came in for, for quite a spanking during that uh, period because, you know, while he was speaking or, or during the question and answer period, we pulled up the blog and you know there were six blogs none of them had been updated for months i think that they have a real problem and here he is speaking about the great work of ebonyjet.com to a group of bloggers who all have their laptops out and can all see that that the website hasn't been updated for for many months and that they're not really serious about engaging this new a uh, very tech savvy uh, hip hop generation so you know i think that they have a, folks like ebony and and jet uh, have a real challenge on their hands. At the same time, I'm very encouraged by the work of Essence.com and Black Enterprise, who I think actually have uh, begun to move uh, much more um, assertively and confidently into this new era and have been rewarded with uh, a renewed audience and, and renewed interest in what they're doing. I'm very curious about your decision first not to be identified and then to decide to disclose and why there would be people uh, who are blogging on these issues who are, are afraid to uh, reveal their identities. Well, the, the history of the United States has shown that outspoken black people tend to get shot at a lot. So you know, I think that that was part of, part of the decision to uh, maybe see how it worked out first uh, before coming forward. Um, and also, it's a, it's a real commitment. I think for a lot of African Americans it was who were early bloggers, it was a bit of a, a dipping a toe in the water to understand, well, what is this like? What is this new era? I mean, you have to remember that blogs as we know them were just invented in 2002. So, you know, by 2006, it was still, it still felt very new. It still felt very experimental. But I think that it really was, a, the, the choice of pseudonyms was mostly driven at the t 
at the time by a certain level of fear um, of uh, will people if I if I am outspoken um, if I say uh, some some fairly sassy things or, or really speak my mind will that offend people you know will it offend my boss or you know the guy down the hall you know or uh, the lady at the lunch counter who knows um, who might be offended and how will that impact my career or my, or my social prospects most of the african-american bloggers when you look at them they have very successful professional careers uh, brooklyn bad boy who now blogs on uh, daily coast uh, is a doctor so you know you've got people who have you know who have stakes in in their careers and have made a commitment to those and and blogging was something that really came out of a sense of of civic spiritedness and participation in in the national discourse of politics but what you see now i would say easily 70% of those early bloggers are now um unmasked and and uh unleashed if you will mm-hmm. on the public yes ma'am Hi, Cheryl. Uh, my name is Valerie Linson. I'm the series producer for Basic Black at WGBH. And I was just wondering, you touched on this a little bit, but what does uh, Black Power 3.0 look like? You know, I understand the, the current, you know, uh, setup of what Jack and Jill politics is, but, you know, beyond 2012, what, what would the purpose be? Is that, is that 3.0, beyond 2012? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Works for me. Beyond politics, beyond getting, you know, a mm. person elected. Mm. Right. That's a great question, and uh, it's something that I've done a lot of thinking about. After all, we're, we are in the midst of creating that right now, and, and I'll, I'll go back to my own personal theory that we're living through Harlem Renaissance 2.0, and that, you know, when you look at the work of, say, a Kanye West and a Dave Chappelle versus the work that we do um, or, you know, the folks at The Root or some of the new artists that are coming up or, you know, some of the amazing educators um, that are that are promoting some incredibly innovative um, tools. The Root 100, by the way, Summit uh, and um, the Root 100 list is a great place to look and see who those people are, who, who are the new leaders. They did it uh, last year, and both um, Baratunde Thurston and I were uh, chosen to be part of the Route 100 of emerging and established African-American leaders, which was really exciting and, and a great honor. Uh, and then they did it again this year, and I think that those two lists are a really great snapshot into what Black Power 3.0 is going to look like, because as those people begin to... Uh, grow in in their own confidence and their own powers as they inspire a new generation and as they start to work together um, which is something that's just now starting to happen that's an incredible dynamism that is I think is going to really electrify um, this country and and all of the people who um, again who work with them it's it's not just confined to African Americans I think black power 3.0 is all about being a cross-cultural and collaborative movement Mm. John? Uh, John Reedy, Shorenstein uh, Center Advisory Board. A, a couple of questions. First of all, um, just on the recent elections, I, I would point out that Massachusetts uh, uh, people voted and they reelected Governor Deval Patrick uh, by a pretty good margin with a lot of, um, of money spent by the opposition, and he had a couple of bumps uh, in his first two years, but it was a very comforting victory to many of us. However, do, the first question is, do you think uh, African-Americans in, in other parts of the country realize that their failure to vote has uh, put them almost under the 
thumb of Mitch McCullough and John Boehner. I mean, this is really an awful thing. Are they aware that the midterm elections mean something, and it's not just the national election? And uh, I'll uh, come back with a second question. Sure. I think there are varying levels of awareness um, in general, and I think not just among African Americans, but among all Americans. Midterm elections in general tend to be uh, a, a have a lower turnout than the presidential elections, just because they tend to receive a little less media attention. It seems to people, again, seems to people as though the stakes are not as high. I think that uh, my hope is that as uh, people see that the Obama agenda starts being blocked by some of these new uh, Tea Party members, that that will be a galvanizing force um, for a higher turnout uh, in the next cycle. Uh, my second question relates to uh, Congressman Rangel. Uh, uh, Sunday morning on CBS with Charles Osgood uh, virtually closed uh, last Sunday with Ben Stein, one of the more conservative uh, people in the country, giving a ringing endorsement of Charles Rangel, going back to his military record, which I was never aware, and which is something you've got to keep in mind, and all the things he has done. Uh, how did um, the blacks treat the whole wrangle thing? Not that any of us had any way of doing anything other than calling our congressperson, but uh, how, did, how did you feel they felt? I mean, it's a somewhat complicated issue, but when you hear a conservative like Stein sort of push all the charges aside and say it doesn't really matter in the greater scheme of things, how did you think the black press and the white press handle the whole thing? You know? Certainly, Charlie Rangel has an incredible history. Uh, He was one of the founding members of the Congressional Black Caucus, which at the time um, it was founded was, you know, something that no one had ever done before um, and and was very, has become a a very important uh, institution um, within Congress and and very powerful. Uh, You know, he is a lion um, of his time, and and I think history will show him as, a positive influence. That said, I think that certainly, you know, among our community, um, with Charlie Rangel's troubles, you know, particularly around uh, his Dominican villa, you know, I think that there was uh, a certain eye rolling and uh, a certain sense of here we go again. Here's another African American politician who goes in with incredible ideals, is an amazingly charismatic leader, and gets corrupted by power. Uh, so uh, I think that it's it's it was seen by many as a, a tragedy, uh, as as he's a, a tragic figure, and frankly, you know, a figure that invokes a certain shame and disappointment. Uh, that's where I would I would say um, things are. I do think that he has been probably treated a little harshly. Um, you know, some of the things that he have done has has done probably amounts more to, you know, tax issues. Um, you know, he didn't actually, you know, go after any, you know, teenage pages or anything. Um, at the same time, though, the charges were serious and, and were extensive. I think there were 11 or, or 14. Right. That's a lot of, of charges. So, you know, and I think he has been made to answer those and to correct those. And, you know, I hope for new leadership in, in Harlem. There are uh, some really interesting and uh, uh 
leaders coming up um, in that district um, that to replace him. I mean, Charlie Rangel's 80 years old. You know, at some point, he's going to retire. That's going to happen, and it's probably going to happen soon. So, you know, what what I'm looking for, you know, forward to is, you know, really uh, engaging and supporting some of the, the new and, and very important leaders that are coming up um, out of that district. Hi, I'm Tracy Stark. I'm a student here at the Kennedy School. And I was just wondering, um, what do you see for the future in terms of technologies that you ought to embrace right now to attract people? And secondly, are there specific technologies that would appeal to African Americans as opposed to the general population that you could really draw on to get more political activism? Sure. Uh Again, Twitter uh, has become an increasingly influential engine for us. Uh, Baratunde uh, Thurston, my co-founder at Jack and Joe Politics, actually has 56,000 people following him on Twitter. I have a, a fewer. I tweet less often, but still, you know, I, I have 3,000 people following me, and I've actually gone after not just quantity but quality. Uh, we know that there are not only um, black bloggers who follow us on Twitter, but white bloggers, um, Latino bloggers, Asian American bloggers. Uh, media, uh, other luminaries, other activists, uh, other uh, folks who work in various campaigns, you know, politicos, their staff. So that's certainly, you know, Twitter for us is uh, increasingly important. We do have a Facebook page. I was uh, having an issue where people were finding me on Facebook despite my best efforts and were, were trying to become uh, friends with me personally. Uh, and that's still happening, but we decided to act, create a page to, to channel the community who seemed to be eager to engage in, in that uh, median. And that, that uh, site continues to grow. So one of the things that we would like to do in the revamped um, Jack and Jill Politics 3.0 is focus more of our energy on that Facebook page, which now pipes in the blog posts and people comment not only on our site but also um, on Facebook. And again, uh, mobile is very important for African Americans. When you look at advanced internet and uh, use of internet on phones, not only is there no digital divide, but African Americans are more likely to buy smartphones. They are more likely to use tools like mobile TV. So. Certainly we see mobile as not only a way to reach uh, current African-American influentials, but also a wider group of African-Americans who may fall in working class or um, poorer communities who are using mobile as their primary means of reaching the Internet. One of the things that we did earlier this year was make sure that our site is accessible on mobile phones to make sure that we weren't leaving that audience behind and that we're there for them when they're looking for us or when someone sends them an email um, where they uh, get a, a Jack and Jill politics post and they can click on it and see it on their mobile phone. We hear that a lot actually. There, And I think this may be unique to African-American blogs perhaps, but what we hear uh, anecdotally and, and empirically is that there are people who read the blog in various forms uh, who then actually pass that on either through Twitter or through email to a hundred of their friends or to everyone they know who golfs with them or or what have you that you know it's it's a community of leaders 
of their own community. And, and we really do treat our, our community members with that kind of respect, understanding that you know, they may influence a lot of other people. Yes. Hi, uh, my name is Asad Rahim. I'm from the law school. And I wonder, you mentioned about um, how black people largely support Obama. And I wonder, as, you, as a political critic and a social commentator, do you ever feel at odds with your role and your support for Obama? So how do you feel about criticizing him in an open space where you know that like, a large percentage of your readership is not black and may use your words to lend credibility to other views that you may not agree with? Thank you. I'll tell you, the first time I had to write a critical blog post about Barack Obama, it just about broke my heart. I, 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 I'll tell you what. But at the same time, you know, we, we do see ourselves as, as having to hold black leaders accountable. And he's not only the leader of the nation, but, of course, a lot of African Americans see him as, you know, a president who happens to be black. So uh, I would say we are probably 90 percent supportive um, of uh, the Obama administration um, and act uh, with a lot of other bloggers as a form of defense corps. We did that during the uh, election and, and we do it now. At the same time, there have been instances where we've parted ways or we felt that things could have gone a little better, such as Van Jones or Shirley Sherrod or a, a number of uh, choices that may have been handled differently. So uh, when we have uh, had those uh, uh, instances and we've actually gone public on the blog, uh, those have met often with resistance from our readers. There are, there's a, a segment of our community that, that cannot brook any criticism of the president whatsoever, um, for whom it is very frightening and very disturbing. How dare you? Uh, say something negative about the president. Most of those tend to be our older readers, and we've actually called them out in the comments. We're like, how old are you? Uh, you know, like, <laughs> where is this coming from? You know, in part because for them, you know, any, any, any form of criticism seems to be, well, you're weakening him. You know, you're, you're playing the same game. You know, we've got to, you know, have his back no matter what. And, you know, I think what distinguishes the hip-hop generation from maybe an earlier generation is that, you know, we feel like he's strong enough to take it. You know, it, that, that other people, uh, that other groups in America are smart enough to distinguish, you know, criticizing, you know, a, a critique of uh, his performance while still respecting the other work that he's doing and have it not discredit everything that he's doing. Oh, well, you know, they really, you know, uh, sort of messed up with Shirley Sherrod. So, you know, that means that, you know, Barack Obama is some kind of monkey. Like, I don't, you know, I think that people are actually smart enough to, to not make that, uh, that choice cognitively. And, and so that's why we feel... I think comfortable enough to take strong stands and to hold the administration accountable and to make suggestions of other choices that they might make, even when it makes some of our audience uncomfortable. And, and over time, often some of them will come around. Um, so that, that's the, the tack that we take. Hello. Hello, my name is Bev Freeman. Um, first, um, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with a reference to how blacks feel because I presume your audience is diverse and their opinion and their knowledge range, you know, hugely. So I wondered if you could comment on that, what you know about your audience or, or how your posts vary in terms of opinion or difference. 
Um, but also, how broad do you intend to become? In other words, treatment of issues like income disparity, health disparities, world trade, economics impact on disenfranchised people, poor people in other countries. So just wonder if you want to bring those issues um, to the attention of your audience. Thank, Thank you. you so much for those those questions. Those are great questions. So it's kind of a two-parter. So I'll take the first one. We were surprised uh, early on when we discovered that our blog had an appeal far outside of uh, the African-American middle-class audience that we were targeting. And even today, our, our audience is probably 30 to 50 percent non-black, um, and that's you know multicultural. It's, it's whites, it's Asian Americans, it's Latinos, you know, Native Americans, whoever they are, you know, they're they're some of them are reading Jack and Jill politics, and that was really exciting for us and a little confusing. Uh, but you know, we decided that you know it was it was akin to the appeal of someone like a Dave Chappelle, where you know he is you know clearly coming from his own experience you know as an African American, and yet the issues that he's talking about and the way he's talking about them are you know of appeal uh, to a much wider audience of people who you know have grown up. You know, listening to hip hop. Hip hop is is no longer just an African American phenomenon. It's an American phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon. So people who are influenced by that vernacular are going to seek out that vernacular in other ways. And so on the blog, we you know have maintained our, our, our focus and a target on you know speaking to you know, a predominantly African-American audience and representing predominantly African-American people. At the same time, we have invited uh, non-African-American people who are doing really interesting things that we think are pushing America in the right direction and, and share the same beliefs as our audience who aren't African-American. So, for example, Rinku Sen of uh, Applied Research Center or Adam Luna, um, of uh, America's Voice represent um, people who aren't African American but are doing amazing work and, and who get it and are able to bridge the gap between, say, Asian Americans and, and their beliefs or Muslim Americans and, and what they believe and, say, you know, immigration and Latinos and, and the relationship between, you know, the race baiting that's done in the immigration debate versus the race baiting that's done in, in other uh, conversations. Then to this, your second question on uh, reaching out to a, a broader uh, topic focus, we have, you know, the, the tagline of our blog is a black bourgeoisie perspective on U.S. politics. So we are, we are pretty focused on black bourgeoisie and U.S. politics. At the same time, also to our, our great excitement and confusion, uh, Jack and Jill Politics has found an international audience, and I have been on you know BBC World Service, both radio and TV, many times. Al Jazeera has come to my house and uh, uh, done uh, a profile um, with me. So you know, I, I know that we reach an international audience. Um, we have at times taken on. Uh, 
issues that are outside um, of U.S. politics, um, in part because we know that African Americans are interested in, in those topics. Uh, certainly the uh, call to uh, tackle apartheid um, in South Africa was driven um, in uh, strong measure by uh, African American middle class people who saw parallels between the struggle to end segregation and Jim Crow here and apartheid in uh, South Africa. So, you know, that same type of um, activism is something that we know um, is of interest uh, to our audience. It's something that we would like to do more of over time. We do touch on it on international issues, on foreign policy, uh, but it, it is it is challenging just to cover the wide gamut of U.S. politics and, and do that well. Let me share, follow up a bit, Cheryl, just with one quick question. How much diversity of political opinion is there in your audience? I mean, is, do you have African-American conservatives who certainly must be well represented in that bourgeoisie audience that you're talking about? Uh, or is it mostly an audience of, of, of African-Americans and others who have a, essentially the same political perspective anyway? It has changed over time, the, uh, the diversity of viewpoints. I would say when we first started, uh, it was largely folks who were progressive-leaning. Uh, uh, over time, we have attracted a... Uh, an older audience um, that has mixed in, and they tend to have more conservative viewpoints on topics like, say, gay marriage, um, and and have pushed back on on our general blog's um, viewpoint that you know, gays and lesbians and, and bisexuals and transgender folks deserve full equality in in, in all things. Uh, there are some some very strong uh, African American conservative blogs, Booker Rising, uh, Hip Hop Republicans, for example. Uh, primarily, those folks tend to stay on those blogs. We do have conservatives who come and uh, sometimes are interesting and productive uh, members of in the comment community. Sometimes they are trolls and, and they have to be pushed back on or. or you know, we've actually had to ban a couple who we thought may have actually been paid um, to, uh, they just posted a little too frequently and a little too insistently on their topics in, in a way that was not normal. Uh, so uh, it's not clear online who's, who's black or who's white or who's Latino. So we don't always know exactly who folks are. Uh, but at the same time, you know, just as the Congressional Black Caucus is not a monolith. You know, there are, even though most of them are Democrats, even within that sphere, you have people who may have more conservative viewpoints on certain issues, who may be more progressive uh, than others. Uh, we have that within our audience. And, and sometimes we disagree with each other on the blog. I'll post something uh, on the blog and someone will come behind me and uh, not necessarily directly criticizing me but have a completely different viewpoint um, than I do or, or have a different uh, tack on the issue and that's okay. When we started the blog and, and started as a group blog we, kn we knew and, and actually cultivated that sense of you know, we're going to present the varying uh, ideas and ideals uh, among African Americans and we're going to have that topic publicly in a way that used to be just around the kitchen table. Hi, 
My name is Tameka Tillard, and I'm a mid-career MPA here at the Kennedy School, and I actually happen to be from the Congressional 15th um, in Charlie Wrangell's district. Um, I kind of want to use Charlie Wrangell as a way to kind of frame my question. Um, oftentimes, the Internet, or in particular, new media, um, whether it be blogs or, or news websites, tend to kind of criminalize political leaders. Um, and we're now seeing that kind of evolve, not just to political figures, but to ordinary, quote, black folks. And I think a great um, example of that is with the case with Google, in particular Google Earth, where in New York City, the um, NYPD was, was able to use footage caught from a Google Earth snapshot and was able to identify suspects in a robbery. Um, my question really gets to, um, one of my concerns is aside from always kind of gathering the opinions and kind of like how we are as a community in our voice, one of the things that seems to be omitted from the conversation is um, how this technology is not sometimes either used responsibly and how it can potentially criminalize us and, and demonize us in ways that we haven't yet thought about um, because of our great propensity to adopt it so early and to use it to a greater measure than maybe other groups do. And so as someone that's been in new media for such a long time, I'm gravely concerned with this because I feel like the community, that being the black community and the larger community at large, is not talking about this and how it is actually being used to kind of identify and profile. And it's a new dimension of racial profiling that no one's yet talking about. And as a New Yorker, it was really troubling to me to think that here we are and a Google Earth, quote, snapshot can somehow be used um, and submitted as evidence in a, in a case where you know, it, it to some extent seemed like just circumstance and, and it didn't seem like really valid stuff. And I'm wondering, is that gonna be the new dimension of profiling for us that we need to be concerned about? Any weapon can be used for good or for evil. So I think that there are legitimate concerns about the ability uh, of these new tools to hurt as well as help. I have concerns, certainly, about uh, the use of uh, some of these tools to track what we're doing, to follow. It's, it's very difficult to be anonymous. That was one of the reasons I actually came out from the shadows, be was because I wanted to control that experience myself and not have it happen to me. Because you, you, anyone can find out who anyone is now, right? My hope is that these tools will actually reduce the number of African Americans who look like someone that they saw, right? That, oh, I saw this guy walking down the street and he snatched my purse, and you know, someone isn't able to tell African Americans alike because they're not around them very much, and so someone is you know, unjustly convicted. You know, my, my hope is that, you know, cameras, for example, in police cars, we're seeing it increasingly where, you know, someone is, you know, actually, you know, engaging in police brutality and they're forced to answer to it because there's a camera in that police car and it, it shows up on YouTube. So, you know, my, my hope is that as African Americans become more digitally savvy and, you know, not just African Americans, people who like African Americans, uh, African Americans and their friends uh, actually you know, use these tools to push back. Of course, there are concerns um, about uh, safety and, and about profiling, um, but I think we can mitigate those. I think that uh, 
when you look at a, a topic like net neutrality, I'm actually more concerned uh, about uh, net neutrality and making sure that there's equal access to the net uh, for all citizens. Certainly, there's redlining in districts where you know poor uh, neighborhoods that that might be more likely to be African American uh, don't have uh, full or or fast broadband. Speeds, so you know. I think that there are a number of issues that are also of of deep concern to African Americans as uh, the uh, the globe changes uh, how we communicate and how we connect. I mean, can you speak to specifics about what the African community should be doing? Like, who should they be talking to? What policymakers? I mean, because I don't feel like our politicians are informed about where to take this measure. And like having a discussion about net neutrality. It's like a glazed look on most people's face. They don't even know what the terminology is. They don't know what the terminology of like location-based services is. So how do we take that to the next step and actually accelerate the issue? Well, we do that at Jack and Jill Politics. One of the things that we have been keen to do is to educate uh, our audience on the importance of topics like net neutrality and uh, racial profiling in all of its forms. Uh, and to galvanize people to action, to work with partner organizations that are organizing and pushing lawmakers on that. I think it is changing very quickly. You know, there are uh, folks uh, who before didn't know, right, how to use email. They may not have known what a location-based service is, but now they have GPS in their Buick. So, you know, I think that, you know, the, you know, older generation, um, you know, that which happens to coincide often with the civil rights generation uh, is getting up to speed slowly, um, but they're, they're getting there. So I'm optimistic. I think it's a, it's a matter of making sure that those who are digitally savvy, you know, who have not only crossed the digital divide, but are, you know, the flag bearers are actually bringing folks behind with them. I want to, if you have a question, you have to talk into the microphone because we're on C-SPAN. Okay. You're up. <laughs> let me, while you're making your way to the, to the microphone, let me just ask you quickly. You've said on your website that one of the things you're really interested in is black geeks. <laughs> I want, how do you see that community of black geeks expanding? Is it rapidly expanding? Is this... The, the issue of mobile and so forth a part of that, or do you mean something else? It's a really incisive uh, question, which is why you, you run this place, I suspect. Uh, yes, it is rapidly expanding. When we first started, literally, there were a handful of, of blogs like us, and now there are thousands. Uh, you know, black people have more or less taken over Twitter, uh, as I mentioned earlier. So, you know, the expansion is is happening very quickly. You know, I am not a social scientist, so I couldn't necessarily explain to you exactly why. But I, I think in part it's because these tools tend to uh, provide some social advantages that uh, mitigate some of the social disadvantages of being African American. When you're applying for a job online or when you're you know, having a scientific discussion online, people don't necessarily know whether you're black or, or white or any other, you know, or purple or a dog. So, you know, I think that uh, what's what's powerful and and how it has spread is you know, this mechanism that people are using to uh, leap over barriers that may have existed in the past. 
Also, uh, what you're seeing in terms of the black geek community uh, are people who have managed to find strong careers, careers, again, where your complexion doesn't necessarily make a difference. As long as you can code, you know, people don't care if you have two antenna and three eyes. You know, they, they're, they're glad to see you. So an example of where we're seeing that now is the Blogging While Brown conference, which started off... Uh, a few years ago with uh, maybe 50 people and has doubled every year. And every year we're getting stronger speakers. This year Facebook and Microsoft uh, were among the speakers. It was sponsored by Comcast. So, you know, what we're finding is that uh, corporate entities are also really interested um, in this new, uh, really technically savvy and engaged and connected community. Yes, ma'am. As this young lady is, I'm a New Yorker as well. I came through this school in the early 80s with Donna Brazil. My question for you is almost ditto to hers, but on a local level, because I've got this dual citizenship thing here going between here and New York. And I'd like to ask, ask you if anyone's presented the questions about um, or ask you about a, 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 a double, um, how can I say it, a, double standard, if you will, for some of the black politicians because of what's happening with Diane Wilkerson and Chuck Turner here in Boston and where they're being demonized and jailed and what, or thinking they're thinking about sending them to jail and what have you. And there's people, other people that have taken way more and done way worse than them and they're walking around scot-free. So I'd like to know if you've addressed that or if anyone's asked you about you know, a double standard either here in this arena in Boston or anywhere else. I'd like to know what your opinion is about that. Sure, thank you. Yes, we have addressed that uh, on the blog uh, many times. Uh, certainly while we act to hold uh, African-American leaders accountable, we also see ourselves as making sure that uh, they're defended uh, as well. So. Uh, we have spoken, uh, not just me, but other bloggers, uh, on the topic of, you know, are African-American leaders held to a higher standard of conduct? And, uh, yeah, I think you can see that uh, in certain examples that you know, it, it, there are um, classic cases where uh, there are leaders who have gotten away with things, um, where you know an African American leader who may have done that probably wouldn't have and, and would have drummed out Larry Craig, uh, I think might be an example of someone who managed to hold on in the Senate uh, a lot longer than say you know a Charlie Rangel might have had he engaged in the same um, behavior. So yes, it is a topic that we uh, touch on. I think it's changing uh, over time. Um, you know I think that the uh, service of Barack Obama as uh, president is probably going to, to change uh, forever uh, how African-American politicians are perceived if he, if he does a good job. Um, and, and, and that's our, our hope. Cheryl Conti, thank you for being with us. We've enjoyed it. And good luck, Jill. <laughs>